are listening to the podcast of the White Church at the Elk River YMCA in Minnesota. Our mission is to seek Jesus, connect together, and share His love. Accept the one whose faith is weak, without quarreling over disputable matters. One person's faith allows them to eat anything, but another whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. The one who eats everything must not treat with contempt the one who does not, and the one who does not eat everything must not judge the one who does, for God has accepted them. Who are you to judge someone else's servant? To their own master, servants stand or fall, and they will stand, for the Lord is able to make them stand. One person considers one day more sacred than another. Another considers every day alike. Each of them should be fully convinced in their own mind. Whoever regards one day as special does so to the Lord. Whoever eats meat does so to the Lord, for they give thanks to God. And whoever abstains does so to the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives for ourselves alone, and none of us dies for ourselves alone. If we live, we live for the Lord, and if we die, we die for the Lord. So whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. For this very reason, Christ died and returned to life so that he might be the Lord of both the dead and the living. You then, why do you judge your brother or sister? Why do you treat them with contempt? For we will all stand before God's judgment seat. It is written, As surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow before me, every tongue will acknowledge God. So then each of us will give an account of ourselves to God. Thank you, Erica. All right. Well, I wanted to start just by thinking about MEA for a second. I grew up in Wisconsin, then moved to the West Coast, lived overseas for a few years, boomeranged back here to the Twin Cities and settled in Minnesota. And so I had never heard of MEA or knew that there was an MEA weekend. And I arrived here in 2008 to find that there is this annual educators conference that is almost like a holiday in Minnesota. So you've got to be thinking and planning around MEA. And so here we are on this special weekend, and it certainly at our house has kind of had a holiday feel about it. Our daughters baked a seven-layer cake. I'm telling you, when your kids get old enough to bake on their own, that is a magical time. (laughs) And so they make this seven-layer cake, scoop of Moose Tracks ice cream on top. That was my request. And we had it made this weekend. I did finally, though, have to put a stop to the Christmas music as I heard Pentatonics Christmas all of a sudden coming from the kitchen. I said, guys, it's not even Halloween yet. It's too early. Well, how fast time goes. And uh, here we are quickly now heading towards winter and savoring these final weeks in Romans together. We split the study into two halves, and so the first half we did in early 2021. Now we're back to it this fall for the second half. And altogether, this year, we will have spent 20 weeks studying the book of Romans. And today we flip into chapter 14 and a message that I've entitled, Disputable Matters. Disputable Matters. We all know the feeling of wrestling internally with some kind of dispute or disagreement. 
There was a day of preschool growing up in Rice Lake, Wisconsin, that is forever seared into my mind. Even at such a young age, I'll just never forget this instance. It was during a bathroom break, and if I remember right, it was like the first day of school. And we're on a bathroom break, and I'm standing at the urinal, and the boy next to me turns and starts peeing on my leg. And I remember, this is just forever seared into my mind, looking down at my 1980s corduroy pants and thinking, well, what am I going to do about that? I was mortified. You don't pee on somebody's leg. Who does that? And it may be a silly example. I did weigh whether I should use that as a sermon illustration, but all of us know what it means to wrestle with what to do next when somebody has peed on your leg. (laughs) Somebody has done something or said something, and now you've got to decide what to do about it. Am I going to call them out? Am I going to go get the teacher? How big a deal is this? And what do I do next? The word dispute indicates that there is some kind of disagreement at hand. That We don't see eye to eye about something. And Paul, in this passage, is speaking to the church about disputable matters. These things where we might not see eye to eye, even here in the family of Christ. And then, what do we do about it next? So that's what this passage is about. It's actually the whole chapter that is about this. But we're just going to take the first 12 verses as a representative portion. To understand this passage and rightly apply it, I want to just warn you quick that we're going to have to wander back into the first century a little bit and really determine what are the things that they were wrestling with. And some of it's going to sound a little foreign, not necessarily translate today, but we're going to see the principle demonstrated in its original context. And then after that, we'll be in the position to find our own application. I've been telling our high school students on Wednesday nights, or mentioned it at least a couple weeks ago, that understanding the Bible is like a fishing boat that is over a good spot on the lake. And so you've got the anchor down in the water holding you in place. And that anchor is the meaning of the text. It never changes. It never moves. It's a fixed point. So what Paul meant when he wrote this in the first century, is the same thing that the text means today. The anchor is set. It is though from there, then that the boat up on top of the water has room to move. And that's the application. The application that we find today for ourselves, or from one culture to another, from one time to another. And it might look a little bit different as the winds or the current is able to move that boat around. But the movement is held within certain parameters because it is anchored in place down below. That's the meaning. The boat doesn't drift clear across the lake. Some of you know, you've tried to fish a spot and you keep getting blown off of it. The text of the Bible cannot mean whatever in the world I want it to say. It has to be attached to meaning. So we're going to start there with meaning and talk about what was going on in Rome And that will lead us then to a well-anchored application. That's kind of the two pieces we'll work with today. So to go back to my preschool story, I don't know if somebody has literally or figuratively peed on your leg, but I'm guessing that it's happened. 
And today we gather around God's word to figure out how to do life together and how to follow Jesus together, even amidst disagreement. Romans 14.1, this is the key statement over the entire passage. Everything we read from here on out follows to develop this thought. And it's not just a thought, it is an imperative. And Paul says, accept the one whose faith is weak without quarreling over disputable matters. Now when Paul describes the one whose faith is weak, he does not mean that in a derogatory kind of way. What he means is simply someone who is in the earlier stages of their faith in Christ. You know, faith is not a stagnant thing that you either have or you don't have. But it is dynamic. It makes me think of a garden that grows over a long period of time. A garden that's changing and hopefully is growing and maturing. And some of us here as we gather together are further along And some of us are maybe brand new seedlings, and some of us are younger plants. And keep in mind, this does not necessarily correlate to age. Some of us have maybe identified as Christian for many years of our life, and yet right now, in this season of our life, we might be experiencing a kind of spiritual growth that we never knew before. And all along this spectrum, from newborn Christian, to the one who has walked intimately with Jesus for many years, we come together into this family called the church to cheer each other on and to carry out the mission that Jesus gave to us. And we bring all of these different backgrounds and life experiences and personalities to the table. And of course, all desiring that we would grow individually and corporately in our faith. And as we think about that, that really has not changed at all over the course of 2,000 years. In this case, we're talking about the church in Rome. And as people there are coming to faith in Christ and being folded into this spiritual family, they're coming from different backgrounds. And two of the big categories were those who were Jewish and believing in Jesus, like Paul, and those who were from a Gentile background. That means those who were not Jewish. So they were coming from a Roman background or something else where they had not worshipped the God of Abraham or known the Old Testament. They had worshipped pagan gods and were steeped in Greco-Roman culture. And far and away, though these categories sound a little different to us, one of the biggest challenges of the early church was getting these two sides from two different backgrounds to quit their squabbling. And that's what Paul is speaking to here when he says, without quarreling over disputable matters. The general term that's used for this is the Greek word adiaphora. Adiaphora, disputable matters. And that means that there are matters of disagreement. There's more than one view. There's something that's debatable. Now, we have to keep in mind that the very word adiaphora means that there is also a category of indisputable matters. There are things about which there can be no debate. They are fixed and determined and foundational. And to dispute those kinds of matters would be to depart from the historic, biblical Christian faith. So, a good question might be, well, how do we know the difference? How do we know? 
We're going to apply this teaching today, and we're going to talk about adiaphora in our own time. So how do we know if something is disputable or indisputable? I think D.A. Carson is one of the best living scholars in the field of exegesis. I don't know if you've heard that word. It's a funny-sounding word, but exegesis simply means how to interpret the Bible. And he wrote on this very question, and he said, Across the centuries, people have disputed the doctrine of the Trinity, the deity of Christ, his resurrection from the dead, and much more. But that does not mean that such matters belong in the disputable column. In short, he says, just because something is in fact disputed does not mean that it is theologically disputable. And so how do we know what's really disputable? He says, the most fundamental tool for establishing what is or is not an indisputable is careful, faithful exegesis. That means careful, faithful Bible study. So do you see the anchor? This is where we want to run back to in all the questions of life or faith, is what does this book say? What has God revealed about this in his inspired written word? And today we are asking God's word the question, what are disputable matters and what are not? In Romans, when Paul says the one whose faith is weak, he probably has in mind some of the Jewish believers who still felt obligated to parts of the Mosaic law. The first five books of the Old Testament were called the law, and in it, God had given them the moral and religious framework by which to relate to him and to each other. So it would appear now from the examples we're going to look at next in the passage that this is the crux of the issue in Rome. How to relate to the law this side of the cross. It was an issue throughout the New Testament church. We see it in Acts and Corinthians and Galatians and so on. Now, an important clarification. If the Jewish believers in Rome had been saying that following the Old Testament was a must-have for salvation, Paul would never have allowed it. That was indisputable. And we see him address that in places like Galatians. So this is the more general case where they knew that salvation comes by faith alone in Christ alone, but there was a bunch of them that the Jewish believers there saying, but man, we just... We just love following the Old Testament law. And wouldn't it be nice if we could hang on to as many of those customs as we could? The Jewish believers had lived under the Mosaic law for all their life and for generations. And not to be bound to every one of those 613 commands, it just took some getting used to. It took some growing and maturing in Christ. And this difference between the two groups, the Jews and the Gentiles, is so often what would grate against the unity in the church. And Paul cites now two examples. First, he says, one person's faith allows them to eat anything, but another whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. Or as the old King James puts it, another who is weak eateth herbs. I kind of like that. So the first example has to do with what you can or can't eat. And later in the chapter, we didn't read that. We don't have the time to do it. But Paul will add in what you can or can't drink. This goes back to the Old Testament law where they would describe clean and unclean animals. What you could or could not cook and consume. 
how to do the slaughter, how to prepare the meat properly. And I want you to just contrast that with the Greco-Roman culture where they would sacrifice whatever kind of animal they wanted to their pagan gods and then they would take the leftovers and they would sell it in the grocery store, in the marketplace. And as a Jew, you're coming from a background where you would have nothing to do with that kind of food. But now add this to the mix. Some of the biggest words that Jesus said in the Gospels when he declared all foods to be clean. Mark chapter 7. Peter had a vision in Acts 10 that said the same thing before he goes to the house of Cornelius. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. These are earth-shaking statements. So what do you do now? You have avoided Gentiles your whole life and now your new friend from church is inviting you over for a barbecue. What are you going to do? What do you do at the next church potluck? Or you don't know how the Nimi family prepared that dish and if it's kosher. How are you going to handle it when you've got to sit with a Gentile at the table and you don't even know if this guy knows how to wash his hands properly? Not everyone was in the same place on these things. Now Paul, theologically, he knew that the old food laws had been fulfilled in Christ But what about the weaker brother who is still trying to figure that out? He says in verse 4, Who are you to judge someone else's servant? To their own master, servants stand or fall. And they will stand, for the Lord is able to make them stand. I hope you have a good study Bible at home. They're often too big to really lug around. I've got one I was reading this week that says, God accepts each believer along with issues stemming from his background and maturity level, and is able to sanctify him. You know what that means? It means that it's not my job to correct another Christian on every little thing that he might be getting wrong. That's God's job, not mine. And it is God and only God who is able to teach him to stand, just as he continues to do, by the way, for me. The second example then in the text that Paul mentions, in verse 5, he says, One person considers one day more sacred than another. Another considers every day alike. And again, you have this Jewish-Gentile dynamic. The Jews had lots of holidays and feasts, plus the weekly observance of the Sabbath and different days for fasting and prayer. What were Gentile believers supposed to do with all of those? They believed in Jesus. They'd come to faith But do they need to also adopt Jewish holidays, celebrate Passover, keep the Saturday Sabbath? Complicated questions. Maybe a little different for you and I to think about. But this is what they were wrestling with. And not everybody was in agreement. But Paul is saying, nor do you need to be. He says each of them should be fully convinced in their own mind. In verse 5. And if that's the case then in these disputable matters, you can honor God actually either way. Right where you're at. If you mark such and such a day, then do so for the Lord. He says, if you decide to eat such and such a meal, do so for the Lord. If you decide to refrain from it, do so for the Lord. 
F.F. Bruce hits the nail on the head in summarizing these verses. He says, The glory of God and the spiritual welfare of others should be a Christian's chief consideration in eating and drinking or in anything else. You see, you have to realize that in this Christian community, it's not about me. That's the position we each have to come to. In Christian community, it's not about me. It is first about God's glory, and second, about others, and then comes me. I'm third. I'm third. And whatever kind of disputable matters may be present, they just are not the point. And if they are, then we've missed the point. So let's go to verse 7. Thank you for the careful work through the text with me. We are heading towards application. Verse 7, Paul is going to then supply the basis for this statement. He says, For none of us lives for ourselves alone, and none of us dies for ourselves alone. It's a beautiful passage, and yet it may not be saying quite what you think it's saying. Because when we read it on its own, we take it out of context, we probably would think that this is a description of community. But what it's actually talking about is your relationship with the Lord. Something even more profound. Listen to the very next verse. If we live, we live for the Lord. If we die, we die for the Lord. So whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. Everything else, every disputable matter, Paul is saying, will fade away in light of that relationship that you have with God. So you know the real reason that I don't have to be right on every disagreement, every little argument? It's because we belong to the Lord. That's the basis for it. Paul is saying it's because he's in charge, not me. I'm not the priority. So Paul can come back to the question in verse 10, and he can say, you then. He's built a theology. Now he says, why do you judge your brother or sister? Or why do you treat them with contempt? For we will all stand before God's judgment seat. And you see Paul is echoing the words of Jesus here, isn't he? You can read it later. Go to Matthew 7 in the Sermon on the Mount. Why do you judge your brother or sister? He's saying it's not your job. There is only one judge. And one day we will all stand before him. Now, the judgment seat Paul's talking about here is the Bema seat, sometimes called the Tribunal of Christ. But it is not, it's an important distinction, it is not the judge's seat from a courtroom. Rather, the Bema seat is what you would find on an athletic field for a track and field event, or in Greco Roman culture, of course, we're thinking of the Olympics. So that's where the Bema seat was, and the judge would preside over the events, over the games, over the competition. And then afterwards, I think of attending my kids' cross-country meets, everybody gathers around and they honor the athletes, and rewards and recognition are given, and everybody cheers everybody else on. So this is not the last judgment like we think about in Revelation. This, the Bema seat, this judgment seat is about rewards and recognition within the church. For believers. And Paul is saying, 
We all will be there one day. We will all have to give an account for the race that we have run. We'll all stand before Christ one day, already welcomed into his family. This is not about salvation. But we will be recognized for what we have done with this little lifespan that he has given to us. Did we use it for his glory? Did we use it for the spiritual benefit of our brother? Or did we sit and squabble over secondary issues? If I can return to F.F. Bruce once more. He said, and this I found a stinging remark, but I couldn't argue with it. He said, there is no sin to which Christians are more prone than that of criticizing others. My brothers and sisters, may it never be, not here, not among us. And so how do we apply this text? Now we're up on top of the water. And we're going to talk about what it looks like to wrestle with these things. You know, because as far as I know, our breakfast is not involved with sacrifices to pagan deities before we get here. And I have not met anyone here at the Y Church who is in a huff over Jewish holidays. So how do we apply it? We've seen Paul's examples. Now how about here? What disputable matters would divide us today? Now keep in mind, we're not talking about the indisputable matters We are asking about the secondary stuff that could divide the church and ruin relationships and keep us from being effective in the kingdom of God. Number one, American politics. Right? That's got to be an obvious one in the time that we're living in. Now, it's not that that stuff is not important. It's just that it's not our primary concern in the church. It is a disputable matter. And on this note, I actually, and I've said this before a couple occasions, but I really want to commend you because in this, I see this perspective being lived out here. I really see such a rich fellowship here at the Y Church that political opinions, though we have them, are parked at the door. And this continues to be a place where we link arms together For the greater goal of following Jesus. Praise be to God for that. It has been tested, of course, these past couple of years. Because pandemic, public health, politics, all starts to get blended together. Words like masks and mandates and vaccines become buzzwords that can almost raise the blood pressure in the room. And I continue to have people check in week to week who are trying to figure out how to navigate these things in their extended families. And so I know the stories across this room and that it is not easy stuff. It is complicated. But maybe I want to suggest to you that it will help diffuse those situations if we start to see it as adiaphora. That it is not something I have to be right about at all costs. That keeping the relationship is in fact more important. So let's go to some less obvious areas. 
Politics was my first example. Paul mentions food and drink in the passage. And so I want to ask us, what are some of the other things that we consume? Students, I want to invite you to think about this. I think there's some relevance here for us. Do you ever find yourself thinking, is it okay for me as a Christian to watch such and such a show? Is it okay to watch this movie or that movie? It's almost Halloween, and so, you know, we're in horror movie season. Is it okay for a Christian to watch a horror movie? Or how about music? Is it okay for Christians to listen to such and such an artist or a song? Maybe you've wrestled with these things lately or earlier on in your life. What about if it is explicit? What about if the lyrics are hypersexualized? Mom, Dad, what is it? it's a really good song and it just has this little part. How about other media? What kind of books are okay to read? You know, when my daughters were five and would bring home books from the library, I never thought a thing about it. Now in middle school, it's a little different. What kind of books are okay to read? What kind of social media accounts are okay to follow? What kind of links should I click on? You see what I mean? These are all things that we consume, that we take in. And Christians may come to some different conclusions on these things. It is adiaphora. Welcome to the gray zone. Disputable matters. What about alcohol? We asked the question last week and went into it a little bit more in detail. Is it okay for a Christian to consume alcohol? You know as well as I do. Christians will come to different conclusions about that question. But this is a spot where accepting the weaker brother is especially relevant. You know, the Bible does not forbid the consumption of alcohol in so many words. But at the same time, I dare not use my liberty and cause a brother or sister to stumble. So are you ready, for instance, to have a dry family gathering because someone else at your dinner table is struggling with alcohol? That is the principle of the weaker brother. Martin Luther said, A Christian is a perfectly free Lord of all, subject to none. Next sentence. A Christian is a perfectly dutiful servant of all, subject to all. He captures the tension brilliantly. And this balance, living in this tension, allows me to avoid the long hook of legalism on the one hand, and on the other, to be perfectly fine setting aside secondary matters for the sake of others. Let us accept one another in love rather than be divided over disputable matters. That's the message today. My brothers and sisters, let us not pass swift, uninformed, unloving, and ungenerous judgments. But may we each pray, Lord, put a guard over my mouth. And may our words always be gracious, always be edifying, and always be indisputable in love. 
Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for the gift of your word to us this morning. And we pray that your Holy Spirit would now cause right application to take root in our hearts and minds. Lord, the areas where we have gotten ourselves into needless disputes, hair-splitting disagreements, Lord, we ask that we would come under your Lordship and entrust our brother or our sister to you. You are Lord of all. And Lord, each one of us before your throne today ask that you would be Lord over our life. We ask this in Jesus' name. Thanks for listening to the Y Church Podcast. For more information about the Y Church, check us out online at theychurch.org.